think we're just going to jump in so that we can get as much time for Q&As and for Sarah's talk as possible. Uh, so I'm going to remind you again of the rest of the week, the schedule for the 11th hour. We have tomorrow uh, a slightly different 11th hour where there will be musicians as well as a poet and they'll be discussing a piece of music that's going to be played on Friday night. So, um, and that's a free performance on Friday night that you are welcome to go to, but they'll be playing a few things, talking about the uh, overlap of poetic inspiration and musical inspiration, things like this. That is not gonna be in this room, so this is something to note. It'll still be at 11 o'clock, but it'll be over in the old Capitol Mall, that big kind of old mall um, that's near where your classrooms are, across uh, Washington Street from your classrooms. It's in the recital hall, the University of Iowa Music Recital Hall in there. And that'll be at 11 o'clock, so come. Uh, it's a great, beautiful recital hall. It'll have good acoustics, and it's going to be a great performance. They'll be performing some Schumann and some Tchaikovsky. All right. On Thursday, we have Juliet Patterson and B.K. Lauren, Poetry as Foundation of Fiction and Nonfiction, and that's back in this room. So come back here at 11 o'clock for that. And then on Friday, we have the faculty readings in this room. So come and hear all of the faculty read on Friday. All right, so today we have Sarah Safian with us, and she will be talking about the politics of writing about loved ones. A novelist has it easy. His characters sprung from his imagination don't talk back when they're not happy with the way they're depicted on the page. But what if your character is your ex-husband, your twin brother, your mother? Are familial loyalty and literary integrity necessarily at odds? How can we most effectively navigate this touchy terrain to maintain our real-life relationships without compromising the stories we need to tell? In this lecture, Sarah Safian will discuss such prickly issues as the possibility of multiple truths, altering identifying characteristics, inviting loved ones into your writing process, or not, the pros and cons of allowing relatives to read your manuscript, and how much to revise for their comments, if at all. I need help with that one. Uh, so, determining if what could hurt others truly advances the story, also. Whether you're in the midst of a memoir project or are just contemplating one and scared off by this very conflict, Sarah will guide you toward exploring forms of expression that you can stand behind, both as authors and as brothers, daughters, and friends. So, um, I'm excited to hear about this. I've wanted to write about my mother, but I don't know if I should. <laughs> Sarah Safian is the author of Ithaca, her memoir of being an adoptee who was found by her birth, birth family. She teaches memoir at Sarah Lawrence College and works individually as a writing coach. Formerly a journalism professor at NYU and the New School, Sarah has written for publications including the New York Times, Smithsonian, and Yoga Journal. She has been a writer in residence at the Atlantic Center for the Arts and the Malay Colony, and currently has various book projects percolating. Uh, this is Sarah's sixth summer at the festival. Um, all right, so please welcome Sarah Safian. Thanks so much, Mary, and thanks everyone for being here. Can you hear me okay in the back? I don't think it's on. I'm pressing power. Uh oh. Do I just press power? Because I'm pressing it. Hello, 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 hello. Oh, no, it's not on. 
Oh, you got to hold now, it down. Yeah, now it's going to come on. Okay, how's that? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh, thank you so much for being here uh, to talk about the politics of writing about loved ones. It's a particularly thorny issue for memoirists. Um, but I was kind of joking in my description there because novelists don't necessarily have it easy either uh, because several novelist friends I have complain about uh, loved ones griping about characters that they presume are based on them. So basically, if you're a writer and have any personal relationships, you kind of can't win. Uh, so this is really a discussion for everyone. Um, and I'd like to open with a quote from uh, radio host and author Garrison Keillor, who draws a lot from his own personal experience in his writing. He says that writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from scraps. People meet writers and are bowled over when the writer is friendly to them and invites them to his house for a glass of wine or to shoot up heroin or whatever they do. And they talk their heads off and a year later, it comes out in a book. And there follow years of bitter and fruitless litigation. And that is why you should always keep a writer at arm's length. And that's all true. <laughs> so that's sort of a cautionary tale, but maybe more for your loved ones than for you yourself. Um, and Garrison Keillor's not alone. There are illustrious others, you know, Joan Didion and Janet Malcolm among them, who agree that betrayal sort of falls under authorial license. Um, I'd like to think I take a more nuanced view. Um, who here, for starters, who here has uh, written a memoir or is working on one currently? Okay, great, quite a few of you. And who is um, thinking of doing this but is somewhat scared off by this very issue about writing about real life people? Yes. And some of the same people. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and you can be scared off by uh, what your loved ones may think as characters or as readers. As you reveal things about yourself and others, you can also be wary of your loved ones as readers of your memoir, um, or both. Um, as I talk, feel free to raise your hand um, to chime in with questions or thoughts so that this is a discussion as well as a lecture. and. Um, and addresses the particular issues that are coming up for you. Um, and there'll certainly be time at the end, um, but feel free to raise your hand throughout. Um, as Philip Lopate, the essayist, uh, wisely puts it in his great book about writing, which is called To Show and To Tell, um, I'm someone who calls himself a writer, and if I write about my life, I am inevitably writing about others because no man is an island. Um, and so this is really at the heart of this issue um, because as much as we're the authors and so we have the authority to tell our story and memoir is inherently subjective, there are other people inevitably affected by our stories. Um, one way to think about this, this issue is right at the beginning, the motivation to write the memoir. Um, if anyone cares to share uh, someone who's working on a memoir currently, or has completed one, or is contemplating that. Um, can you explain what your motivation is for doing this? Does anyone want to share? Yes, Lisa. Hi. Um, yeah, I went through a very difficult personal experience. It felt very lonely through it. And okay. thinking that I was the only one who could 
possibly be going through it. On the other end, I felt like there were a lot of people who said, you know, I realized that I wasn't the only one and that I would have liked the book I'm trying to write now mm. before. Mm -hmm. It would have been helpful to me before, so I'm kind of hopeful that maybe it could help somebody who's similarly going along. That's great. Not that they're right or wrong answers, but that's in the right column, I would say, because it's externally focused in a way. You're thinking about your reader. You're thinking about how this might help someone else or be interesting to someone else. Any other motivations for memoir? Yes. Yes, I don't have any children. I want to uh, write about my legacy for all my nieces and nephews. And they mm -hmm. are living in very different cultures. Mm. And want to be sure that they know where they come from and what, and what context they come from. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Again, that's very much thinking about your potential reader, and in your case, it's people who you are personally uh, connected to. So this issue, I'm sure, comes up. Um, even if you're not writing about them directly, they know you in real life, so that can still feel self-conscious and uncomfortable. Um, other motivations anyone want to share? Yes. I lived through a real period of change in women's lives and it needs to be recorded mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. because younger people see it from where they start. Right, right. And it would be helpful for them to know what came before that maybe helped them be where they are now. And you bring up an interesting issue that I talk a lot about in memoir, um, that dual goal of achieving both the unique and the universal, because um, certainly there are lots of women who could, who could write about this, this period that you're talking about, but no one can tell your particular story, your particular take on that period. And so in that way, it's your specific story, but at the same time, it has this universal appeal um, to contemporaries of yours, as well as, like you said, the generations that follow. So that's very interesting. Anyone? One more? Anybody else? You can think about it. Yes, yeah, start there. <laughs> so that's that's a little different. The motivation is to alienate. So that that's that's very interesting. I, it's good to hear the variety of, of motivations. Yes, I like that. That's very refreshing and 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 good for you. Good for you for being honest with yourself and with us. Um, well, so as I say, there's no like good or bad motivation per se, but. Um, if you want to write a story that's interesting for others to read, um, I might say closer to the bad side of the spectrum would be, for instance, to garner sympathy. Um, I mean, a lot of us are uh, drawn to memoir because we had a, a painful or dramatic experience, um, but just serving it up sort of unprocessed isn't quite enough. Um, you know, look at this bad thing that happened to me. L look at this. Um, this trauma that I withstood. Um, that's the beginning, but what are you going to do with that story? Um, another not so great motivation is perhaps to seek revenge. Um, and uh, Philip Lopate again said, never write to settle scores. Enter into the other person's point of view and be as fair-minded as possible. Um, and that's sometimes easier said than done. And I have to say from my own experience writing my memoir, Ithaca, um, which as Mary said was about being found by my biological family, which was both parents and three full siblings because they married after giving me up for adoption. Um, 
I was encouraged by my Amazon reviews, by the scope of them, and encouraged by negative ones, critical ones as well. And the reason is that um, there was such a range of responses and they were all equally passionate. Um, some readers felt like I was the bad guy because I held my birth parents at arm's length. Um, they contacted me and we corresponded for three years before we met in person um, because that's the pace that I felt ready for. I wanted to get to know one another gradually on the page first. Um, and so given that circumstance, some people passionately thought that I was this, this cold, unfeeling person. Here are these loving parents who have gone to all this trouble to search for me and find me. And how, how could I possibly hold them off this way and I'm such a terrible person? Equally passionately, other people said that, you know, my birth parents were these needy, invasive people um, who, who came into my life and de demanded a relationship with me. Um, now, neither of those is accurate. Um, but what encouraged me was that that range was possible um, and that there were also the more nuanced reviews where they saw no bad guy, no good guy, it's not black and white, it's gray, and everyone has different needs and desires, and, um, and everybody's flawed, and everybody's sympathetic, um, and so those are the reviews I like best. But these critical ones that were so polarized were encouraging to me because it made me think, maybe I did succeed in telling the story fairly if there could be such a range of responses. You know, if everyone had thought I was the good guy, I don't think I would have felt that I succeeded, even though it may have seemed more complimentary to me as a character. Um, and similarly, if everyone had thought I was the bad guy and my birth parents were the good guys, again, not fairly or accurately representing the experience. So the scope of them, even negative, was encouraging to me that perhaps I was able to get into my birth parents' point of view, like Lopate advises. Um, Another uh, not so good motivation to write memoir is, is to confess or to process something. I mean, of course, that can be an initial motivation. Um, it can be very therapeutic, of course, to write about your experiences. And that's where a personal journal comes in. And again, the journal is the great raw material, the lump of clay. That's not the crafted finished product that you're giving to other people to read. It's a wonderful resource and if you're a memoirist or any kind of writer in any genre and you keep a journal, I, I say, you know, bravo to you because you'll, you'll find that very, very useful. Um, but then you draw from that lump of clay to create your sculpture, which is the story you share with others. Um, so again, it's, it's about processing this experience. <clears throat> I would say that a good motivation for writing a memoir is simply because you've recognized a good story that happens to have occurred to you in your life. So in other words, it's not because it happened to you, and in fact, it might be in spite of the fact that it happened to you. You may not feel very much like revealing yourself in this way. Um, but you feel that the story um, is compelling enough and perhaps helpful to someone else or interesting to someone else. Um, so it's motivated by the strength of the story. So in that way, uh, memoirs are similar to novelists or writers in any genre that we're all trying to tell good stories, um, whether they emerge from our real lives or from our imagination. Um, the other thing is, and, and Philip Lopate brings this up, um, that it doesn't, the, the family loyalty and the literary integrity 
don't have to be at odds. He says, you know, writing about one's family or intimates can be an aggressive, vindictive act, but it can also be a way of communicating something to loved ones you never could before. A gift of truth of your feelings. So it can poison the air or clear it. And sometimes that's not a matter of the content about what you share, but the way you convey that content. Um, so back to the process of working on the book and if and when to share the manuscript with your loved ones. Um, that's sort of the $10,000 question. And to make that decision, um, there are several things to consider. If you do share the manuscript, at what point in your writing process does it make sense to do that? And by the way, there's no one answer to any of these questions because each situation, both the writing process and your relationships with your loved ones are, of course, individual. So it's very case by case. But these are the things to think about. If I am going to share it, at what point in my writing process does it make sense, both personally and creatively? Um, if I share it, how much control to veto or accept what I write should I give them? Um, how do I decide what to change, if anything, based on my conversations with my loved ones, based on their responses? Um, what do I perhaps leave out entirely, if anything? Um, and also determining when content would hurt people and not necessarily advance your story. So in other words, like I said, there's the lump of clay and there's the sculpture. And not that your loved one's feelings should entirely dictate the crafting of that sculpture, but sometimes it would be gratuitous and it might hurt someone and really it doesn't advance the story very much. So is that really too high a price to pay? Um, maybe, it, maybe it is a, a logical price to pay, but maybe it's just too high and it actually doesn't improve the integrity of the story. Um, and then, of course, there's a consideration. You don't have to share the manuscript. Um, Philip Lopez is of this mind, uh, and he says, having made the decision to go ahead and write about someone, and having done it to my satisfaction, <clears throat> I don't want to give the person so much power. Once you invite people to make changes on your unpublished manuscript, they will. <laughs> Besides, it's my moral dilemma, not theirs. Giving them the option to revise would be like shifting the ethical burden onto them. And I think that's an interesting way to put it, although I don't think that I entirely agree about the power issue. Because to my mind, I feel like, and at least well, with my own experience, that's all I can draw from, <clears throat> I think that um, giving your loved ones the manuscript gives them power that can perhaps be helpful to you. And what I mean by that is um, you're not necessarily going to make the changes that they ask for, but you're offering them the opportunity to react before it's published. So in other words, you won't necessarily make the changes, but they're reacting knowing that there is time to make the changes. And honestly, sometimes that's enough and the changes don't actually have to be made. And I'll give you an example from, from working on Ithaca. Um, the way I decided to do the sharing of the manuscript is I wrote the entire book without sharing and without really even talking about it very much during the process. Because I don't know about you, but 
Um, my loved ones were already sort of looking over my shoulder in my mind. <laughs> you know, I already had that sort of super ego all intact in there. I didn't, I didn't need them to be actually uh, in, involved. I needed to write the book I needed to write. Um, and then I even had a few back and forths with my editor, but I wanted to make sure there was time before it was published to give all my loved ones, my birth family, my adoptive family, everyone the opportunity to read it and react. So when I'd written the book, I felt I needed to write, but there was still time to make changes. I gave each family member um, their own copy of the manuscript, and I said they had two weeks, three weeks, whatever it was, something like that, um, to read it, to choose not to read it, um, to let me know what they think or not. But I was giving them this opportunity to react. And I wasn't making any promises, but I said, please, you know, if you'd like to express a response to me, you know, that, that's, that's what this is for. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be eager to hear that and we can talk about it. Needless to say, that was my least favorite part of the process, <laughs> handing over these copies of the manuscript, which I've been working on for a couple years uh, in my room of one's own. And here it was, my secondary characters were going to tell me what they thought. Um, and an example of giving, the giving your loved ones the power being enough is there was, there was particularly sensitive material um, that my stepmother was involved with as a character because in real life she was, she was involved in this situation and so I represented it accurately in the manuscript and, sh and she was involved in the situation in, this, in the book. And she didn't feel, when she read that, she didn't feel comfortable being associated with this situation. So she, she expressed that to me. And I weighed the integrity of the story and I thought, well, it's crucial for the situation to be in there. Um, it would undermine the integrity of the story to remove it altogether. But it's not that important that she's involved. And so that seemed like too high a price to pay for me. That's how I weighed that. I thought, I, and I explained to her why the situation had to remain, but I said, I'd be happy to rewrite it. You know, I think that's creative license that does not make it fiction, by the way. That's, that's veiling someone's identity, and I'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Um, and so I rewrote it in order to keep the situation in there um, and yet not have her involved in it. So she read that revised version, and she thought about it a little bit, and she said, you know, I think it's okay with me in it after all. So I restored it to the original version with her involved. And I really believe that because I gave her the opportunity to respond, and I even changed it according to uh, what she expressed and in order to make her feel more comfortable, that exchange was enough for her. And so I didn't even have to, I wouldn't have minded keeping it in the revised version, but she really changed her mind because she didn't feel so powerless all of a sudden. She was part of this process. And so I restored it to how it was with her involved in the incident, and that was fine with her because she got to go through that, that's those steps of having agency, of, of having this voice, and not just being conveyed on the page by someone else, which is a weird feeling. Um, so I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, the other reason I'd argue to share the manuscript is people don't necessarily respond the way you expect them to. 
Uh, and the things that you think uh, that you're worried that they'll be bothered by may not bother them, and things that might not occur to you may bother them. Um, and so why not check rather than guess? Because you might undermine the integrity of your own story unnecessarily if you're overly cautious, and it, it may be material that wouldn't bother them if, if they read it. Um, so for their sake, as well as for the sake of, of, your, of your work, it may be worth it to run it by them. Um, and actually, Philip Lopate agrees with me on that count. He says, complicating the dilemma is that one does not always know what will cause offense. I have written fairly critically about people who seem to have no problem with it. I have written somewhat negatively about people who ignored the main substance of my critique, but pounced with outrage on some picayune detail they thought I got wrong. I have written glowingly about people who took it amiss because they did not like the idea of having a walk-on cameo in my center of the universe story when they considered themselves as the center of the universe. <laughs> I had a little of that, actually. Uh, or simply because they did not like the presumption that I could take their measure in a few paragraphs, regardless of how positively I ended up doing so. So it's not even like negative and positive. It's just like, why do I have a, such a small part? Um, even after they were worried about being included, then, you know, then they're worried about not having a bigger role in it. It's very interesting. People are interesting. <laughs> um, I have given offense to certain people by not writing about them when I wrote critically about their colleagues. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he said, you just can't predict how people are going to react. And an example of that, I, I have a colleague, Peter Godwin, who's a writer, um, and he's written several memoirs, and he's from Zimbabwe in South Africa, and now he lives in New York. And um, for his first memoir, um, he sent the manuscript back to his parents in Zimbabwe, and it takes a long time to get there. This was a long time ago, uh, pre-email, <clears throat> and so it takes a long time to get there, and he was under deadline, and he was waiting for them to respond, and waiting and waiting, and the clock was ticking, and his publisher was bugging him, and he thought, all right, I, I, I've just got to sit down and read it like them as much as I can, because I can't wait for them anymore. I've got to finish this thing. My editor's breathing down my neck. So as best he could, he, he sat down to read the manuscript, trying as much as he could to put himself in his parents' shoes and trying to imagine what would bother them. And he was crossing things out and changing things and revising. And just as he finished, their manuscript, manuscript finally came in the mail and nothing overlapped. Nothing. Nothing that bothered them was something that he expected, and nothing that he thought would bother them, in fact, bothered them. He got nothing right. And these are his parents. <laughs> so um, it, it, it caused a lot of 11th hour scrambling. And the other thing that, so I think that's fascinating. And then the other thing he said with his subsequent memoirs, he's written two others since then, his parents have gotten more comfortable in general with the idea of being written about. Um, and it's really just partly an adjustment to seeing yourself portrayed by someone else on the page, regardless of what's said. Because again, it just makes you feel out of control. It doesn't have to be negative, it's just weird to see yourself created as a character by somebody else. And so again, that's why the empowerment of being included in that process um, can sometimes serve your creative purpose, because um, that might be enough for them and you might not have to make any changes. Um, I have another example, probably my favorite example of, of sharing and where 
the personal relationships and the literary integrity really meshed in a way that I, I couldn't have predicted and I was very grateful for is, um, as I say, my birth parents and I corresponded for three years before we met, and I excerpt a lot of our letters in the book. <clears throat> they make up about 20% of the narrative. <clears throat> they sort of serve as a chronological backbone to the story. And, of course, I asked my birth parents if this was okay with them, and they were uh, complimented, actually, that I wanted to include their writing in the book. So, sight unseen, they were, they were happy with that. That was fine. So, at the end of this process, like I said, when I gave everybody a copy of the manuscript, um, my birth father, and for those of you who have read Ithaca, this won't be surprising, um, my agent and I referred to my birth father as intensity man. Um, <clears throat> he had the most to say. <clears throat> about the manuscript, and we had several couple hour long phone conversations about his reactions to the story. And one really interesting comment that he had about my excerpting of his letters, I mean, we wrote letters for three years, so, and like I said, they only make up about 20% of the narrative, so in no way is it an epistolary memoir or an exhaustive account of our correspondence. Um, I include, you know, excerpts from letters, sometimes whole letters, but, you know, really bits and pieces to serve the storytelling. And so he said that sometimes he felt taken out of context. Um, I mean, for instance, you know, like I said, there was this struggle a little bit with um, he wanted to move our relationship along faster than I felt comfortable. And so there might be a letter, um, you know, a 10 page letter where he's breezily telling me about um, the daily goings on of their life and the kids' uh, plays and soccer games and a family trip they took and just, you know, light conversational, here's what we're up to kind of stuff. And then a paragraph or two at the end would pressure me, you know, we'd really like to meet you, it's very hard for us not to get to know you faster, da 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 da. So there was a place where I only excerpted that last paragraph about wanting to meet me sooner. And he said, well, you know, there are all these other things in that letter. It's not as though I just homed in on that issue obsessively and didn't talk about anything else, so it feels you know, I, I feel like I'm being misrepresented. And I thought that that was a very good point. And I wanted to make the changes to make him feel more comfortable, but what I couldn't have anticipated was that it also improved the integrity of the storytelling because it was more emotionally accurate. So I wouldn't include the entire 10-page letter in full, but what I did do is I summarized the rest, just like I did to you, saying what other um, lighter elements were included in the letter. But then I said, but what I reacted to the most was the last paragraph that was pressuring me for reunion. And so that's more interesting, because here's this breezy 10-page letter, but I'm the one who's reacting to this last paragraph. Um, and so that's, <clears throat> that's better storytelling, and it made him feel more comfortable. So I, I couldn't have expected that, and I was very grateful for that, and grateful to him, because it was, <clears throat> it was great editing on top of expressing his own personal discomfort. So for that, I'm very grateful. Um, does anyone else, if you're at a point where you're working on this and perhaps sharing it with your loved ones, does anyone want to share with us that experience, you know, good or bad, of e either verbally telling your loved one something that's included or actually showing pages to somebody? Is anybody at that point? No, everybody's like, oh, I'm not showing it to them. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I shared part of it with my sister, and she read 
page, and you know she's very involved in the story. Okay. And she just said, I can't read anymore. Mm. It's too hard. Okay. And so that was her reaction. And how does she feel about you writing it in general since it is I think she's fine. that's okay. But she just doesn't want to read it right now. But it's she feels comfortable with you writing it. Well, I'm not I'm altogether sure about that because I haven't had much feedback. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have in my situation daughter, I'm writing a book about my daughter's death, and I have to mm. write about her husband mm -hmm. in the arc of this story. Mm -hmm. And this is a hostile relationship. Mm. That's really hard. I really, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to protect him. I know that I need to protect his integrity, and I don't know for sure what his involvement is, okay. but I can't leave him out of the story. Right. I mean, people ask me when I start telling the story well, about him. Yeah. And right. So, and have you shared any of it with him yet? No, I have not. And are you not looking forward to that? I'm not yeah. I'm yeah. Afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's a very volatile man, and I'm okay. That's really hard. That's that's really difficult. And your sister's reaction of feeling like it's too painful to read um, reminds me of um, another friend of mine whose whose son died. Um, and he wrote a memoir about it, and <clears throat> he wants to publish. He's a he's a professional writer, and he wrote a memoir about this, and he wants to publish it. But he he certainly can't do that without his wife reading it and basically responding or giving him the okay. She doesn't want to read it, and I don't blame her. You know, it's the same thing where she said, "Just too too painful. I can't read it now," and. I think it was very personally helpful for him just to write it, whether it gets published or not. And sometimes, you know, that can be very therapeutic. But he, you know, he would like to move it along, but he sim he simply can't. And, sh and but equally understandably, she, you know, it's 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 uh, six years or so, and she just can't bring herself to read it. And that's very understandable. So you're kind of at a you know a stalemate at that point where he can't do anything more with it until she reads it, and she may never feel comfortable. Um, so there's so there's that you know um, in that case I think real life trumps art and not all writers would agree with me but I mean in their case I do think so uh, yes up there if you're looking at doing a fiction piece based on a true story right and the, the main people involved are dead and gone okay should there be any obligation do you feel any obligation to share what we're doing with their offspring. And it's a fictional version, but would they be very recognizable? I mean, is it is it pretty much as it was, but identifying characteristics are changed? Or? I fear that it might be recognizable. <clears throat> right, right. Um, I mean, again, it's case by case because it depends on the particular relationships involved, but. Um, I would I would think you know that my impulse would be to at least talk to the offspring about it. I don't I don't think, especially considering that it's fiction, that you you're ob well, you're not obligated anyway. But I don't know that I would feel the need to give them a copy of the manuscript to to vet or something like that. But I I, I would I would be compelled to to tell them that you're up to this. 
um, and that so that when it comes out, it's not a surprise. Um, th that that would be my impulse. I don't know if other people have thoughts. Yes. There are always something inherent in a, a, a memoir. One is empirical, and the other is philosophical. Empirically, people just do remember things differently. Yes. Their passage of years, maybe in coping with it, they adjust it in a way they can accept it. But then there's a philosophical problem: is even if you get the facts, mm -hmm. people agree about the facts, you're going to see it from a different set. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And that's a great segue into my next section. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. Um, he, he was addressing this idea, which I was actually going to get into next, about multiple truths, which is basically that people remember things differently. And as I said earlier, memoir is an inherently subjective genre. That does not mean you're fabricating. That does not mean it's actually fiction. It's simply you have your truth and someone else, a loved one who might be a character in your memoir, were they to write their own, it might turn out very differently. Even if it's a memoir about the same uh, period of time, the same experience, um, their version might be very different. And that's not just OK. I think that that's good and interesting. But it's, but it's how do you grapple with that? You know, This idea of multiple truths and how, how is that possible? Um, and that's actually what I was going to talk about next um, because and the reason that doesn't make it fiction is because it's a memoirist job to be as long as you're transparent with the reader in other words you're presenting this as your subjective version of things and your memory is your truth because the way you remember it affects your whole experience. It might even affect your identity development. It might affect your life going forward from the point that you're writing about. That is your truth, and you're presenting it as only that, truth with a lowercase t. In other words, it's not absolute, um, and there's room for other truths. And in fact, in, in my memoir, I invite other truths in occasionally because I think that discrepancy is so interesting. So cr creatively speaking, you can sometimes include other versions of incidents. Um, I mean, for example, I remember the conversation when my father told me that I was adopted. He didn't remember it at all. And I think that's interesting that he doesn't remember it. Um, I think I do. I remember it quite clearly. I don't know who's right, um, but I included both. I, I described that scene, but then I also made a note that he, he didn't remember it. Um, my adoptive mother died when I was six, and I remember when he told me that she died, and he remembers that, but he remembers the scene differently. He remembers the dialogue differently. I included both versions of that scene in the memoir, because I think that's interesting. So it's not just withstanding that, that dilemma of multiple truths, but embracing it, because that can be very, very compelling to the storytelling, I think. And it's also in the name of transparency. I'm admitting that this is my version um, and that it's true to me. Um, but here's this other person's version. Um, and Tobias Wolf, um, who wrote the memoir, This Boy's Life, uh, talks to this issue. And he said, um, I've been corrected on some points, mostly of chronology. Also, my mother thinks that a dog I describe as ugly was actually handsome. <laughs> I've allowed some of these... I've allowed some of these points to stand because this is a book of memory, and memory has its own story to tell. But I've done my best to make it tell a truthful story. 
So I think if we're transparent and we have the integrity to be as truthful as we can to our own personal subjective lowercase t truth, that's, that's the best that we can do. Um, in other words, it's a point of view. It's, it's not an objective informant. It's a subjective interpreter. That's what a memoirist is. A memoirist is distinct from a reporter in that way. Um, I mean, I don't believe, and I'm, as I say, I, you know, as Mary explained, I come from journalistic roots, and I don't believe pure objectivity is possible at all, uh, even in journalism, because you're seeing it in a particular way. But there's certainly gradations along that spectrum. And memoir is on the subjective end, no question about it. Um, so there's the question of changing identifying characteristics. And, and as, I said, as I said earlier, if it's basically the account as it was, but you're just changing names or maybe identifying characteristics, that doesn't make it fiction. Um, I mean, there's a little note on my copyright page that I did that in order to protect the privacy of people. And sometimes I even change, uh, in just one or two instances, I changed the time at which something occurred because even with names changed, the people would still be recognizable. So I had to change location or perhaps uh, when exactly the incident occurred. Um, but it was all just in order to protect people's privacy. It wasn't in order to fabricate or to embellish the story. Um, and to me, uh, I wanted to change as little as possible. So in my birth family's case, I changed their names and where they live, but I changed it to a town that's very similar to where they actually live. <clears throat> By changing those two things, and I changed where they went to college because they live in the town where they went to college. And by changing just those things, I could keep everything else the same because I really wanted to keep everything as much the same as possible. The other thing about pseudonyms is I, w I did this and I found it very helpful. Um, rather than writing the whole story with actual names and identifying characteristics and then slapping on pseudonyms at the end, I chose the pseudonyms at the very beginning of my writing process. Um, I chose them very carefully. I thought about them. I wanted them to have meaning. Even if the reader didn't get it, I wanted each name to have meaning to me. Um, you know, I sat on the floor of Barnes and Noble with, you know, a Bible and a couple baby name books, and I just like went to town. And um, the reason I did that, I mean, one was to get used to them being under those names. But again, this surprised me. I didn't set out to do this, but it's helpful creatively because it gave me a little bit of distance from the real people. Um, it made them into characters. Again, not that I was fabricating. And not that I wanted to get away with saying something about them that wasn't really true or that was negative, but it gave me some creative breathing room because under different names, they were my creations to a degree. A little bit more, I mean, they were my creations anyway. I was the one doing the writing about them. But under these different names, I could own them a little bit more as characters. And having that distance really helped. So that's why I would advise if you're going to change identifying characteristics, do it early, because it can really help you in your creative process, um, if that makes sense. Um, and the other thing, of course, about changing identifying characteristics is get things accurate, because if a reader uh, spots an inaccuracy, that can be very distracting, you know, and, and sort of point out, well, well what, what else is, isn't true in here? You know, I mean, for instance, I initially changed the college that my birth parents went to to Dartmouth. 
And luckily, before the book was published, I found out that Dartmouth didn't go co-ed until 1973. And I was born in 1969, uh, right after they graduated. So I had to change that. And there would definitely be readers who would notice that. And then it's distracting. You know, I thought this was a memoir. I thought this was factual. What, what's going on? So, so make sure your, uh, your changes to protect privacy are accurate. Um, I just wanted to give you a final thought, and then we'll have a couple minutes for any other questions or comments people have. Um, I just want to thank you for being here this morning, because just showing up to a lecture called The Politics of Writing About Loved Ones, I think shows that you're being thoughtful about this. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, that you're being sensitive not just to your writing, but also to your relationships with other human beings. Uh, who may be characters in what you write, or readers of it, or both. Um, so I applaud you for, for being thoughtful uh, as a person in the world, as well as uh, a writer. And I'd like to leave you with a, a slightly gentler quote than I started off with. Um, and this one is from Danny Shapiro. Um, she is a fiction and a, a fiction writer and a memoirist, and so she really knows of what she speaks. And she's actually quoting her friend Honor Moore, who has also written about her own family. We don't choose our stories. Our stories choose us. And if we don't write them, if we ignore them, we are somehow diminished. But at the same time, I don't feel that being a writer gives any of us the right to just let it rip, to disregard the feelings of the people surrounding us. So I take care. Perhaps not as much as some people would like, but as much as I can and still not be diminished. And there you have it, the terrible, impossible, fundamental calculus that is at the heart of every memoirist's life. To find your voice is to tell your truth. And there will be a different version of that truth for each and every one of us. And then just to end with one more comment from Philip Lopate, he offers three rules of thumb. One, befriend only people who are too poor to hire lawyers to sue you. <laughs> Two, if you plan to write about friendship, Make lots of friends because you are bound to lose a few. <laughs> and three, for the same reason, try to come from a large family. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, we have some time for questions. Yes. I'm curious whether you have ever come up with a diplomatic response when people criticize you for what you didn't write. Uh, I hmm. often have it thrown up to me that, yes, your facts are accurate, I can't dispute that, but it would have been so much more uplifting if you had made this person into the nice person that she was, rather than accentuate the negative. Or why didn't you include that anecdote? It would have been so uplifting, so inspiring. And my, the only response yeah. I've ever been able to come up with yeah. is because F you, that's why. Because F you, that's why. Okay, that's one response. <laughs> because I wrote, it's kind of like the version of the, the parents because I said so, because, because I'm the writer. Well, <clears throat> I mean, kind of a little bit, uh, a little bit less aggressive than that is, a, is an anecdote um, about uh, Jimmy and, and Rosalind Carter, Carter and um, she was working on her memoir, and um, she was being interviewed about it, but Jimmy was sitting with her, and she was talking about 
her story and she was saying this happened and that happened and he started to interject and interrupt and, and correct her and say no 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 it happened like this and this happened like that and that happened like that and she just said Jimmy you wrote your memoir now I'm writing mine <laughs> so that really you know pertains to the subject of multiple truths and um, you know, it, it, again, it depends on, you know, in all seriousness, it depends on who the person is and how, how forceful or gentle you need to be with that person. But you may not have found that person particularly uplifting. And so your depiction of that person is accurate to you. Again, it's your truth. So if there's a way to uh, graciously and, as you say, diplomatically explain that, that this, th this is how I saw the situation go down, or this, is, this was my experience of this person, this is what's true to me. Um, I'm not saying this is the absolute truth about this person or about this situation, but it's my truth. So if there's a way to point that out, um, because there's something very powerful about words on the page, you know, I mean, that's why I said, even if it's not negative, people react, it feels strange to see yourself depicted by someone else and makes you feel very out of control. And similarly, you see something on the page, well, it must be true and it must be the only truth. And with memoir, that's, that's not the case. So allowing that flexibility, pointing that out. Yes? Hi, I'm interested in your background at Columbia and NYU mm -hmm. and journalism. And I'm working on a nonfiction piece and how you, what you brought with you and what you left behind in terms of writing creative nonfiction, it's just particularly in terms of the limits. You talk about truth a lot. Yeah. But what, how, how does it bend in what you're doing in a memoir versus straight, you know, hardcore journalism? So like how journalism lent itself to the memoir writing? Right, particularly with facts and uh, the truth and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, as I say, um, as much as memoir is a subjective medium, I'm not at all, uh, you know, I'm very critical of the James Fry's of the world because that is fabrication and that is <clears throat> gratuitous embellishment and that's not accurate. That's different from allowing room for interpretation. Um, and as I say, even as a journalist, I don't think that pure objectivity is possible. And I think that whether it's journalism or memoir, it's all about that transparency with the reader. So you're not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. You know, you're letting the, the reader know. You know, in journalism, whether you use the first person or not, um, it's your take. And, and even within journalism, there's certainly gradations of subjectivity. You know, there's some very... Uh, first-person oriented journalistic pieces. I mean, look at Hunter Thompson, for example. Um, he's a pretty extreme example. And then, you know, I, I worked for a daily newspaper for three years, and that's probably about as objective as you get. You know, I would never use the first person in an article um, for the New York Daily News, and it really was about reporting and conveying the facts and the information, and it wasn't about me interpreting. But that said, you know, when you're in the reporting situation, someone else might have gone and covered the same event and come up with, you know, gathered completely different information because they're seeing it with a different set of eyes. I mean, maybe one day we, and the other thing is you're having an impact on the situation that you're observing. Um, there are levels of that too, the sort of participant observer or immersion journalist, you know, where, where part of the point is to be interacting with your subjects. But even if you're not doing that, you, you're, you're having an impact. Maybe one day we'll figure out the technology where we can be flies on the wall or invisible and really have zero impact. But it's just disingenuous to, to think that we can go into a situation <clears throat> and not affect it. 
um, as I say, in varying degrees. So memoir is at the subjective end of that nonfiction spectrum. Um, I think the way that journalism informed my memoir writing, I mean, I continue to write journalism, but I did journalism before I wrote my memoir, is um, in terms of the motivation, as I was talking earlier, to write a memoir, I was really asking the who cares question early and often. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to think that my memoir is not self-indulgent and that I was I was motivated to write it for the right reasons, that I found an interesting story, which seems sort of like a journalistic impulse. You know, you're looking for a good story. And this was a good story. It happened to have happened to me. But the first, the priority was that it was a good story, not I want to write about myself. In fact, it was often in spite of the fact, like I kind of didn't feel like writing about myself, um, but I thought it was a good story that might be interesting to other people. And the other is that I made every word count. And that's certainly something you learn about in uh, newspaper writing where you have very little space. So even though I was going from you know, 30 inches or 300 words to 300 pages, I wanted to make every word count. You know, I wanted to make sure that there wasn't any excess in there. And this is for another lecture, but the first draft of my manuscript of Ithaca was over 100 pages longer than my final. And, and I added things along the way too, but I, I, I took out enough that it, it ended up being a full 100 pages shorter. But none of that work was wasted because it's very important to, it's very common and I think it's important to overwrite and then you see what must be there. So you're almost like, you know, that, again, that clay analogy, you're putting the clay, you know, on the wheel or the block of marble or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, and then you have to chip away at it to see, to see what, what statue emerges. Yeah? Editing. The question is, do I have a problem with editing and, and the, the sort of fear of leaving something out and will the integrity be undermined um, if I don't include something? And I, I personally don't, I mean, I've worked a lot as an editor of other people's work too, and I'm able to, to slash at my own work just as easily. I, I don't have a problem with that, actually. Um, because I really, and I think that is from journalistic training to a degree where you simply don't have space. Um, <clears throat> so as I say, even though my book could have been as long as I wanted, I was really strict about what had to be there. So um, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed that part of the process, actually. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes? Uh, I used to what I call pressured memoir, which is um, in the hospice program, we try to get every person to mm. write a life story at the end of life. Mm. And uh, it's fascinating what happens mm. with the family and talk about people trying to change the story and fix the story. Oh. And what's so difficult about it is when you, when you see the person actually make it their story, you see them heal. Yes. And, and it's, yes. And the hospital program is mostly done by amateurs. And I think if we all had your, your ability and your presence, we would do it in such a better way. And I just uh, want to thank you for that. Instantly. Oh, that's great. I don't know if people could hear. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was just to say, if you ever have any interest in doing that work, I think it's trying to be done wow. throughout the hospices. That's really interesting. It, it's, it's work in hospices to help people at the end of their lives. Uh, do they actually write down their life story? Yeah. That's why, and then they bind it and they give it to them. And that, that's so wonderful as a therapeutic exercise. Um, but then you pointed out that the family members are getting in there and trying to correct and adjust. And <laughs> I mean, 
that can be a nice end-of-life conversation as long as it doesn't get antagonistic, you know, where there, there's a lot of reminiscing and there's, oh, and, and this, you know, this relative and remember when this happened and <clears throat> even if it's, you know, a, a little bit of disagreement, that can be a nice, you know, end-of-life bonding family experience. I would imagine, like, no, no, it happened like this, no, like, you know, as I say, as long as it doesn't get too heated, <laughs> even that disagreement can be a, a therapeutic thing to, to, to experience at the end of one's life. I think that's wonderful. I think that's wonderful that you do that work. Yeah. Yes, in the back, and then I think we have to wrap up. Right. That's an excellent question, and it was about multiple perspectives, but within the author. <clears throat> so not about the loved ones disagreeing, but so th that brings up an excellent point where not only do we need to allow for multiple truths, but we need to allow for the evolution of truth, right? Because the truth to you at age six may be very different from the truth to you at age 40 about the same circumstances or about the same people. Um, and again, that's not just okay, that's, that's interesting and good and that can be very fruitful to the storytelling. And I think, but it's sometimes hard to keep track of, right? Because as a memoirist, we're both the protagonist and the narrator. So we're playing these two roles. We're the, we're the narrator, the person sitting at the you know, computer keyboard or at the, the pad of paper with the, with the pen today, but we're also that 16-year-old who's acting in the moment. And we don't want to inaccurately represent our 16-year-old's experience. Like you said, at this current point, you may know more, you may think and feel differently about the circumstances than you did at 16, and you don't want to impose your current thoughts and feelings onto your former self. And I actually just did this in my workshop um, uh, yesterday, um, where I had this can be an exercise that can help with that to 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 make that distinction clear. Um, I had uh, the people in my workshop write a letter to their former self, and so it's you now writing to your former self. And I asked that you write to yourself at a particularly crucial moment in your life. You know, maybe it's a real transitional moment, or you're on the brink of a really difficult decision, or <clears throat> something good or bad just happened, or you're anticipating something good or bad about to happen. Um, you're at some kind of crossroads or threshold. And so you now know more. You know what's going to happen after that watershed moment, and you also may have different thoughts about it. That you 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 treated it one way as that 16-year-old. If you were faced with that situation today, you might handle it very differently. And so, if you're writing about a certain incident like that, and you're getting kind of muddled about, well, what was I thinking and feeling then versus now? That can be a great clarifying exercise uh, to real. And, and you're addressing yourself in the second person, you. You know, um, because as much as you know, we're on a continuum, and it's all—it's all you. You're one person at different stages in your life. You're also different people. You evolve, so it's that evolution of truth, which I think is equally important to the idea of multiple truths. So, thank you for bringing that up. Thank you so much, everybody. I appreciate it. Thank you.